Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissner. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Ruger, Rugged, Reliable Firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Calling His Calls Made, Double Nickel Taxidermy, Where Hunting Memories Are Preserved, Taurus, Maker of the Raging Hunter and Other Fine Handguns. Now here's your host, Larry Weissick. Well, welcome to another version, another episode of DSC's Campfires. And guess what? I am in North Texas this afternoon, having the absolute pleasure of spending time with with Brandon Houston, up close to a little town called Breckenridge. I spent years ago time in this area doing work as a wildlife biologist when I was stationed out of the Abilene, Texas office. And so this old country up and through here to me has always been extremely interesting. Been gone from it for a while, but. With Brandon, Brandon does some consulting work, some wildlife biologist work, and uh, I want to talk to him a little bit about kind of what's going on in this part of the world now. Brandon, appreciate you being around the uh, the campfire with me today. Larry, it's an honor. I appreciate you having me. This part of the country is pretty pretty special. It's um, you know for many many years it was almost desolate. You know they were in bad bad need of rain, and and uh, when I got the opportunity to take control of this place. Um, to say it was a blank canvas was was definitely what it was. Um, what I didn't know was the curveball I was going to get thrown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's kind of Mother Nature's way. I, th- I think yeah. of doing things. Absolutely, absolutely. The 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 amount of deer that were on this property versus the amount of habitat that was provided for them was. I'm surprised we weren't. We had starved deer. I mean, these these deer were just. Thick, thick, thick in here, and it was. I, I knew it was going to be an uphill battle. Uh, what I didn't know was what I was saying earlier was, I would spend an entire year out here just observing, just seeing the changes and what the habitat could hold and what the deer were doing, trying to get a little bit of a grip on the carrying capacity and the density of what was here. And then uh, shortly after that first season, I had said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get on my feet and I'm gonna get on a side by side and I'm gonna spend three days and I'm just going to slowly move through this entire property and figure out what's going on and that never got to happen. 
we got 30 days of straight rain. This, in, <laughs> this entire place flooded. I don't think I was able to step foot back on this property until, um, I, I, I think, I want to say it was over 90 days before it was My dried enough. But what would happen in those 90 days is a ranch that was nothing but red dirt and mesquites and, and prickly pears and cactus would turn into, I never saw a shred of red dirt as you can see out here now. The, the ground thermal is absolutely incredible. Um, and it threw a, a major curveball at me. And I had to try to adapt to that and figure out what now is growing, what, what now are they consuming. These, uh, it, it almost was another nature's way of taking care of my carrying capacity for me. I, I, I really expected to come in here and go, okay, from what I observed year one, we're going to have to put it put this place on MLD. Yeah. We're going to have to, I mean, really get rid really of Really take numbers down. Yeah, because it was bad. And that changed overnight. It was the most interesting. I've never seen that happen in my life. In, in the time that I have been working with ranches and helping people and consulting, I've never seen that drastic of a topography change ever. It was absolutely incredible. And so it made my work a little easier but it also made it tougher at certain times because the deer, they adapted to it as well and completely changed the way they do everything. And so um, it's, it's been fun. We've, we, ha we had new lines of genetics that, that were just naturally brought in. You know, as you saw, this is 100% low fence. And it's 100% native. And we, we, we now have some beautiful deer, as you've probably seen. Oh, my gosh. I, I, you do. Kind of describe this country. We're kind of due west of Dallas-Fort Worth, mm -hmm. kind of north of Abilene. It's kind of, it's, I, I, I guess it's kind of rolling plains when you get right down to it, but not really. But here, too, you, you've got uplands, and then you've got an influence of a river that comes, so you get a big river bottom. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I, I noticed when I first came onto the property was the size of the mesquite trees. The mesquite trees here, most places they call them bull mesquites. Because there's some of those that look like you're anywhere from two to almost six feet in diameter kind of thing. I'm in circumference, take that back. There's Oddly, we, we don't have a lot of young mesquites. Um, I, I do try to stay on top of that. Right. Um, I do try to stay on the advancements of, of prickly pear and the advancement of, of, of cactus. But there are some mesquites here that I, I wouldn't even begin to tell you how old they are. I mean, you've looked up here around the house oh and seen gosh, that yeah. there's two behind the house. That I, I would I would think they've got to be at least two or 300 years old. I would think it would have to be. Just looking at how they're in the diameter and the circumference of the trunks and and. Some of them have got, I'm looking at one right across the way, it looks like there's basically four or five trunks growing from one mutual base, mm -hmm. or appears to be that way, and each one of them is probably 18 inches to two feet in diameter, and, and you go, good gosh, it takes a long time to grow those kind of trees. It does, and this this habitat here, in this topography, I've told everybody, I said, it's, it's you can go you can go 200 250 yards on this property and and feel like you're in West Texas and then oh, drive yeah. and feel like you're in you know in a complete river bottom piece of property right you know we have a branch of the Brazos which is a a the King River that wraps around a vast majority of this ranch and as as you've seen down there it just it completely can change you know there's one spot I showed you that 
you see the you see the habitat, and then when when the road bends with the river, it completely changes it changes, that fast. It changes totally. It's the most incredible thing. If looking at habitat and you see beauty is is what you like, it's the most to me. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. Mesquites obviously are, are legumes, and so they're nitrogen fixers. Among the other thing, do you think? A lot of what's happened is because of the fact that you had the mesquites, these big mesquites obviously must fix a lot of nitrogen in the soil. Then you finally get the moisture. So it, maybe that had something to do with the, the rapid growth, but also the, what appears to be extreme quality in terms of nutritional value of what that vegetation has on the ground here right now. Absolutely. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. You know, and, and I would like to think that because the river is so plentiful to this ranch you know and we have what four bodies of water that that no matter how bad the texas summers get they always hold water i would i would i would like to think that our water tables is is at a decent depth it obviously must be we went to this one stock tank and you tell me it's pretty much solid rock Mm -hmm. so evidently there's a spring seeps or something that kind of comes out in the bottom of that and that right about up. right about where that stock tank is the king's river if as the crow flies from that which would be due west that, that don't worry about it <laughs> i have my phone train in the background so just for, we'll just pretend it's not happening as the crow flies due west that river kicks directly in towards the ranch right there it, it, it can't be more than 100 yards on the other side of that really? of that, that dam and so um I think our water table's always been there, but but I think there was not enough moisture in the ground to entice and and get full germination of the seeds that were on the ground to grow like we have. Let's let's go back to February. Okay. When we had the extreme cold mm-hmm. up here. I mean, in terms of Texas, it was a blizzard situation all over the state. What effect do you th- you think that may have had some effect in all this too? And what effect do you think that dramatic freeze that we had had on the vegetation well i'm no i'm not a habitat ecologist by any means um and there's probably better people to speak towards this than me but but i'm asking about i I, mean practical and personal experience sometimes trumps a lot of the research as far as i'm concerned absolutely because that research may have been done in a totally different area and so you can't accept it as saying well this is standard everywhere so this is a unique situation out here to me as i stated to you earlier i I, it almost was like mother's nature's way of doing a controlled burn but the opposite effect right there what we fought and this is the first year in seven years that we would have broomweed out here. It, it was it was the most god awful thing. I, I have photos of us working in pens, where you know I'm six foot tall. Where we'd step into a pen and you can't even see me. Can't see the good. broomweed's so tall. Oh We're having to spend the whole end of summer every single week hacking down the broomweed because if the, you couldn't see anything, we couldn't do predator control. We couldn't do or hog control. We couldn't do any type of surveying of deer on the property. It was, it was, but this is the very first year it has not been there. I, I noticed the vegetation seemed to flourish a lot better. Now, take into consideration, we had a beautifully, beautifully wet spring. Yes, yes. And, and that really, really helped. I'm curious what would have happened if we didn't have that wet spring. But I, I, 
thank the good Lord we did. Amen. But it's uh, I I still don't know if we've seen the full ramifications of that. I think that that the way it cycles, I think this spring may tell all, especially since we've had a a warmer, drier uh, winter. And so I'm picking on the tips of my fingers, wondering what's going to happen. But hey, we'll adapt. That's that's the that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of of having a, a management program in place that is set up so that you can adjust as you go based upon rainfall. Yes, sir. And all kinds of weather situations. Yeah, to me, one of the things that happened with the extreme freeze that we had, particularly in these areas, such as what we're in here, North Texas and South Texas as well, too. And South Texas are tremendous brush variation in terms of species. But it, you mentioned like a controlled burn. Yes. Essentially what happened, the freeze killed all the vegetation above the ground, didn't kill the roots. Right. And now so much of that vegetation is growing from a huge rootstock. And you get all this ground vegetation coming up, and generally that's going to be a whole lot more nutritious than what was six feet off the ground kind of thing in the past. Yes, sir. So I think that is, has been a very positive effect to what's happened because of the, what we had with the, the freeze. Well, we, we tested something. Um, you know, of course, as we as we talked, this whole place was just froze solid. Oh, sure it was. Just, <laughs> just like every place in Texas it, it was, was in February. Field, yes. So I I had come up with that idea that, you know, would that act as kind of like a controlled burn, right. you know, and would would the use of controlled burns benefit what I felt was had happened to the habitat in February? And so we took 200 acres up here up the county road on, on, on a ranch that I, I, I consult for, and we burned, we burned 75 acres of it. And if you drive up there today, the to the only thing that was different from what this place yielded this spring and what that place has done is it just eliminated a little bit of the invasive species. That's that's the only difference that I could see really took place. Really, it, it the inspiration of Forbes and Browse to grow. It, it was no better there than it was here, and in, in, even with a burn. Even with a burn. And so I, I was kind of excited about that in ways and, and encouraged about that in ways, and it was really neat to see that. we do, I documented with photos and videos of every inch of everything I could, and it was really neat when it was all said and done for us to sit down and look at it and go, hmm, you know, this is not something... That, that's ever been able to be had. I mean, when was the last time Texas had something like this, what, 30 years ago? At least. Uh, I remember, but not to the extent or the right. length of time that we did. I mean, I remember some really cold spells where it stayed below, oh, right at zero for like two or three days. Yeah. Well, and I'll like, tell this you. This was an extended period of time, and it, it undoubtedly made some changes. I'll tell you this, though. I liked it. It was pretty to see the snow. My kids, my it. kids loved it. <laughs> I loved it. Um, but I don't think I slept a single night that week. I was so worried about these deer. Yeah. You know, I'm like, man, my te- these Texas deer—they're not used to this. What's going to happen? And but all in all, it came out great. And and beyond having to deal with pipes busted and you know stuff like that, it was. I, I think it has done good. But we'll see what this spring holds. Exactly, and I think we need to look. Most time, people, we look at one or two years. I think, he, as you mentioned, I think this is a long-term thing that we got to look at. What, what's what's going to look like five to seven years from now? Yes, sir. What effect is that going to have? The, the rainfall is so important here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're blessed 
occasionally with rain. Yes, sir. Yes, <laughs> but a lot sir. of time we're into, into a drought situation, and, and we've always tried to manage, at least for with the cattle operation, things like that, and particularly even with wildlife, to manage for those least years as opposed to the to the best years kind of thing. This the, the property that I've seen here, we've driven around a little bit, and this area of Texas has always intrigued me. I spent time up here as a wildlife biologist years ago, and it will grow some really good deer. And the genetics as a whole seems to be pretty darn good. I, I spent a lot of time uh, just a little bit west here up around Albany, which is just almost due north of Abilene on some of the, like the... Uh, Oh, the Nail Ranch and the Stasny Cook and the uh, Matthews Ranch and all those things over the years. And it's always intrigued me for so many different reasons from a historical aspect. Because this was big Comanche country at one time and uh, there were some really bad people here. Yes, sir, there was. <laughs> and there were probably bad people on both those who were coming in as settlers and those, you know, were trying to keep them out of here. And then, too, throughout much of this area years ago, you had buffalo roaming all over this area. Uh, Fort Griffin is not that terribly far away. And one year, I think they they shipped 52,000 buffalo hides out of Fort Griffin. Wow. So it tells you kind of what this area was at one time and, 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 and how it's changed. This is an older ranch. And I mean, the fact to say that there's some buildings here that were obviously go back to the late 1800s. And to me, that adds to the to the, the the flavor of this particular property. And I know you're very much interested in the the historical aspects of different things, particularly at that time frame as well. Yeah, it's that's the probably the second thing I love about this business is I, I love history, and it's incredible the things you find when you start walking property. You know, like like you said, this this ranch was originally. This particular one was originally 30,000 acres. It was all picked up. It, well, it was settled by the original family in the 1800s. Right. The house we're sitting in today, the, the stone on this house and the house next to us in the shed over there was, was all constructed with, with, with stone that was mined off of this property. Um, it, it since was, it was divided by the original guy, and right. a lot of it was added on to during the Prohibition. He was able to pick up parcels of land around and continue to grow this ranch. And, but the, yes, you're right. There are buildings there. I mean, I showed you one yesterday that yeah. I cannot, and nobody <laughs> I know can explain what it no, is, what no. it's for. It, I, even you, you know, could not explain what you, what I, I can't wrap my brain around it. No. And there's some ideas, but when, when we got in there and we realized that they were building a abnormally high pin, Yes, you know, around this thing, it, it just debunks everything that you thought it might be, and it's nowhere. It's it's on a piece of property that there's no reason for it to be there, right? But that's what I love. I love that, and the fact that one time we don't know. I can't. We have not been able to find out. I'm sure we can if we really look a little bit deeper. As there's a railroad that came through here. Yes, time. sir. Yes, sir. And there's still some old railroad crossings there on the river that, and through a couple different sloughs that tell me this thing was probably, they, they were probably using a, a mules and a scoop that they would pull behind the, behind the mules to scoop up dirt to build this is what it looks like. Absolutely. And so even from that perspective, you'd, you'd love to go back to say, at, at that time and say, okay, what did the habitat look like? Was it just like this as it is right now? Were there great changes? Were there not? Were there not as much mosquitoes as there is now? And in all likelihood, there probably wasn't quite as much mesquite many years ago. 
And that was probably brought about through overgrazing with cattle and horses and things like that to some extent back in the late 1800s kind of thing from about 1860. But to me... Often I, I'll get into a situation, I'll look at someone and say, oh my gosh, you know, your mind wanders back to what you perceive it might have been like at that time. Well, you know, what's funny is I've walked by it probably five million times, but it wasn't until you noticed it and brought it to my attention, which was that that berm that's out there, that, yeah. that dam that they built the, the old railroad on. And I thought I had an idea in my head of when that railroad would have been through there, but you pointed out the mesquite that had grown on top oh of that. Oh, my God. There's some mesquites on the very top of that thing, which means they'd already pulled the rails. They'd already pulled yep. railroad ties, and most likely. And it was not a small mesquite. It no, was a that big was, one. That mesquite had to have been 75, 80 years old. So you take back 50 years. So we're looking at, you know, the 1940s maybe. Maybe that's the last time it was used. And was it established back in the early 1900s? Even the late 1800s? Because this was a... Pretty economically important area right in through here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Particularly in terms of bringing cattle and to get a little bit farther west to bring the cotton back into the all different places so it could be shipped different places as well too. So, be real interesting to know the exact story. And there's a uh, just off of the uh, the that berm that there's an old. Must as you mentioned, must have been a conductor shack or something. Where yeah, yeah. He so I was told that. I think I was here for probably two years before I guess my I even realized what it was because you know you see it, it looks just like you're on the backside in that one spot. Right. It looks like that maybe there's a pond right there, right. and 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 then they there was a cross fence that was put in there, you know, years and years ago for to to, to section off cattle. But um, I had always noticed that building, and and the original owner had told me he said. There was a conductor's house there because of that pump station. Yeah, that's right there on the edge of the rim of the river. Uh, I guess where the railroad would go over the river at some point, and they said they used to stay there. And, and one day I walked over there, and, and they, there was you could see the cot in there that they would stay in. And I pull, yeah. I showed you those yeah. those those lanterns, old right. lanterns. I pulled those out of there. There's no right. telling how old they are, you know. And it's just neat if if you love history. You know, it's it, it piques your curiosity, gets your brain running and thinking, and that's I, that's again, it goes back to there's so many ranches out there that have so much history. I want to go back to this other thing just a second. The fact that it's right by the river tells me, and there was a pump there. It tells me they were probably using steam engines, so it yep. may go back to the you know maybe somewhere in the late say 1880s because or 1890s maybe because or even a little bit earlier because. Up until that time, up until the 1860s and 1870, there were still Indian raids all over this area. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I believe it. And, and and I've always been told if you could get down, you know, there's certain parts of the river I showed you it's real hard to get right. to. But but all the old guys I've talked to around here said it's a great place to find relics. You know, there's oh, a lot can, of stuff around here. I can only imagine. Yeah. I, can, I can truly only imagine. He said at one point there was a huge, huge surge of people who wanted to come use metal detectors in this part of the country. Yeah. And because there's so much old history in the ground from, from you know, the cowboy era to the, oh, yeah. to the Indians to, you know, everything that took place from then on. Um, and, and like even these old barns that are over here that they, again, used all that stone from the river bottoms, brought up here and constructed stall barns. You know, there's there's no telling what's around there. And, and no. we'll get big rains and something almost every time we'll find something. We'll be out. Driving something, right. you know, whether it's a horseshoe, 
we found some old cartridges from from ammunition that's not even made anymore. Probably some of the old Henry rifles yes, sir. going back to when they yep. first started using centerfire rifle kind yep. of thing, yep. or maybe even some of the some of the early ones were were uh, rimfire. Yeah, we found a I found a spur one time. That was that was probably the thing that really just I mean made every oh, hair on my cool. body yeah. stand up. It was it had been rusted and patinaed real bad and and. Uh, but it, it was a it was a spur. It, it was, you could tell it had been hand forged oh and handmade, yep. and it was just neat. And I've got it at the house, actually sitting on the fireplace mantle as a decorative piece. Appropriate place. But I didn't clean it. I, no, I no, left no, no, it no, no, just no, no. like that. Wiped a little dirt off of <laughs> it and set it up there. The wife didn't like that, but it's it's kind of grown on her a little I bit. Bet it has. It off. was just really neat. It was it was really cool to find that. I stumbled on it. wasn't looking for anything at the time. So this place is is special. It's great. And you know, back to the deer thing. Yeah, where do you where where do you anticipate taking this in the future? It's always going to be a low fence, obviously. Yeah, I'll never high fence, and I, I feel that what we have, you know, we shoot, we take off so many deer here a year that we never even see, you know. And and I keep my thumb on this particular ranch pretty hard, you know. Right. One, it's it's pretty close to home, and so. You know, my kids my kids all killed their first deer out on this, this ranch and, and, and my wife shot her first deer on this ranch. Oh, and, fabulous. And and, <laughs> and if, if I have a youth hunter or somebody who wants to get into hunting, out of all the property we have access to, this is where I'm gonna bring them. Right. And but every year we have good big deer that are come in that 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 we have no clue who they are, where they are, where they came from. And I love that. I absolutely, positively love that. that. little bit of mystery of not yes. knowing for sure what's going to show up yep. when. Yep. I, I do, too. That I love watching, uh, looking at trail camera pictures, but I also love that mystery of not knowing quite for sure. In this kind of country, particularly with the river, you'll have some bucks, I'm sure, that will follow that river for a long time. Yeah. You know, just coming through, and they may stay for a while. They may stay forever. They may just come through and never show up again. Well, you know, my goals over <clears throat> my goals on this place have changed over the last couple of years. You know, because remember back when we were first talking and I first got this place, the largest deer out here was a maybe maybe low one forties pencil right. horn, light colored horn, eight point. May, you might get a nine every once in a while, but a ten and anything right. above that was just unheard of. Um, we talked about the Stevens County Salt. Corey over yeah. there. Every, every every couple of years, a big one will be brought out of there. Right. But Stevens County has never really held that big of deer. But you look now, what we've done, and, and now we're regularly killing one sixties. And, and I shot a one seventy. Uh, no, I shot a one sixty eight last year. And I think what I really want is I want to see if I can get a two hundred inch free range oh. deer out here. Cool. Because there's nothing stopping these deer from coming and going. No, no. All we're doing no. is trying to give them the habitat, and the environment. It is perfect for them so that they can grow and they can flourish. And, and yes, I do have my hand in the management of, of any adjoining ranch around here, which, which helps because I know that yes, if that I walk up 163 and a half year old, he's not going to get shot. That's important. That, that, that does that's help. Really important. Yes, but it does help. I want to grow a 200 inch deer out here because it's never been done. To, to my knowledge, there's there's plenty of high fence ranches down the road, and there's some very good accredited high fence ranches around here. But doing what I'm doing here in this part of the country, it's making an impact, and you can tell when I pull into 
race down there in Breckenridge <laughs> because these guys are like, that's, well, actually what they'll tell me is, oh, you must have come in from Throckmorton. Oh, really? That's what they'll tell me every time. I said, no, sir, I didn't. I'm not in, I'm not in Throckmorton. Because, you know, Throckmorton, Shackelford County, we were talking about that last right. time. They have really good genetics. They do. They have a lot. Their genetics is really for a lot of tine length and yes, sir. beast and main beams. Very similar. I have seen some really massive approaching that six inch basis, but the vast majority of their really good bucks will be four and a half, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. But they'll carry that mass. But again, a lot of tine length in that country over there. But yeah. here, to me, there's no reason. Why in the future you will not grow a 200-inch deer? You know, for years, everybody said I was crazy. And really over the last two years with what we've taken off, I really believe I'm not crazy anymore. No, no. Because it, it's 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 drastically progressing year over year. And, and I'm seeing, and it's been, we've been doing this here long enough to where I've seen generations of, of these deer. I, I'm We're harvesting the deer that were, conceived in year two yes after after we came out of that drought yes and i believe that is one of the determining factors of these deer being substantially bigger you know because our deer here now they're 25 to 26 pounds heavier than they were when before that and i'm not i don't have 2,000 pound capacity feeders out there that are just No, no no i've i've focused on the habitat right and, and I'm a firm believer in supplemental feed is bridging that gap, and it's there for them and available to them. But if I can modify the habitat and advance that, that's what I'm always going to do, because that's what they like. Well, that to me is is, is more deer. Yes, sir. <laughs> more more deer ish, more real world deer kind of thing. I I love the fact that you're not doing trying to do any kind of introductions here. Of, of, oh, we got to bring in a bunch of this kind of bucks or that bread does or whatever. To me, I love to see what somebody can do from the habitat that they have with the animals they have to develop what they can the very best. And based on what we're seeing and what I have seen just a little while I'm here, again, I see no reason why you shouldn't be producing a 200-inch deer and maybe even more of them. <coughs> Two, you have some areas that you kind of really, you don't even hunt. No, no. Like we were talking yesterday, I stay out of them. There's, there, is, there is places on this property and as long as I've been here, people look at me like, you crazy? What? That these boots have never touched that ground. No. But I believe that because that is where they're at. That is their area. And, and yeah. this this area is, is is so large and there's so few people that I believe that there's a lot of deer here that have never seen it. No, I'm convinced that some of the stuff that we went into, and I mean, there's great expanses till there any other human habitation or human influence on the thing. They might just see somebody on the river or something, but it's not. It, they don't know to fear them. Right. They right. don't know to be scared of it. And, and I work real hard on that. And I try to get a lot of the ranches that we work with to, do to be the, that. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I like low impact. Uh, there yes. are times when you need to bring in the dozers. There's times when you need to bring in right. the cedar yeah. shredders and all that. But if you don't have to do it, I don't do it. Now, and I am a firm believer in thinning. I am a firm believer in, you know, shallow disking and shredding to right. advance weeds and forbs. I'm a firm believer in that, but we don't, we're not out there shooting all the time. No. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, I stay, I don't care if we're running a hog contest. 
and, and, and it's all on weight, and the biggest hog in the world runs off in that area. Well, guess what? We're not entering that contest and winning with that one. That's where Because I don't care what time of year it is, we're not going in there. there. I, I love, love those kind of things. I like to keep it natural. We talked a little bit about you, you're producing more bucks, and your buck doe ratio is getting narrow as you go forward. And I know you've become very much involved with Texas, or THRP Outdoors. It used to be Texas Outdoors Hunting Project, now it's TRHP Outdoors. You do some things here to try to keep those deer that you have here pretty much on the property using their products. What what are you doing? One of the, after all these years, I, I had my mind blown this season. This is <laughs> this has been I love the it. most incredible hardest season of my entire life. I have never been a believer. I, I for years thought that the whole mock scrape thing was just pure northern. I was like, oh, Texas deer is going to... I mean, I've walked this property. I've never found a scrape. I've never found what I believe to truly be a definitive scrape yeah. ever in my life on this place or any other interesting, place. Interesting, yeah. And so I had done some studies back in school about with urine-based, you know, urines from bucks and right. from does and right. pheromone amounts in it and attractabilities in it. And anyways... Um, when I got connected with TRHP and, and with, with specifically with Stephanie, we started talking about how the products work and then, you know, with, you use it as well and you, you do it. I thought, you know what, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> what was about to happen within about 48 hours was going to blow my mind. <laughs> so she had, Stephanie, it's a, what, what I think you need to do is, is I want you to take this preorbital and I want you to, you know what a scrape would look like you know what a scraped tree would be low hanging licking branch and i want you to cover those limbs in that preorbital and then i want you to take you a stick of course after you utilize scent guardian to spray yourself down right take a stick and, and make that box scrape and, and and take that product and put it you know the tarsal passion put that in there and then put your camera on it i said okay i went back 48 hours and there was no limb the limbs that were hanging were completely gone. The little bitty half barely mock scrape that I had made without truly disturbing the ground was completely disturbed. There was no denying that a whitetail had done that. And I pulled that card and my mind was blown. In 48 hours, I had got 15 different bucks. <laughs> and here was the incredible part. Oh my gracious. This was the middle of summer. Yeah. This was August. I had 15 bucks in 48 hours, and six of those bucks I have never seen ever on this property. Those six bucks never left this property. We, will, we have seen them. They have become regular deer. A lot of the deer that were utilizing it as well that I've always considered to be travelers. That rut hits, and they're on a doe. They're yeah, moving. Right. They didn't this year. And then, you know, and with TRHP... One thing I really love about them is they're all about educating. You know, there's a difference in urines versus the glands of a white-tailed deer. Absolutely. And Absolutely. there's a difference in attracting a white-tail and talking the white-tail language. And when you use a preorbital, it says one thing. And when you use a, a tarsal, it says one thing. And what they know and what we don't know is, is it, it tells them who you are and yeah. what you are. And when I'm out there as some 200-plus-inch whitetail marking this area that they've never seen, it's driving them nuts. Oh, yes. I have seen some of the most incredible responses 
So, so to make a long story short, since that day, I created originally six mock scrapes mm-hmm. in strategic places around right, the ranch. Right, right, right. And once season starts, I usually don't do a lot of boots on the ground in certain areas. But so just from the observation of walking up around feed stations and in hunting areas, we have I have been able to identify thirty two scrapes in the hunting areas that we hunt that were not part of the mock scrapes that I made. Right. And that have never in history been there. I showed you two of them oh, yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Those two were created within what? Less than five yards of the path oh, we walk yeah, in on. Probably six feet, seven and the feet. Mock scrape that, the mock scrape that I made is 75 yards behind it. Yeah. But that was the response that I got. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, whether I'm with the company or not, I will always buy that product. It's actually, I, it, it's become a part of how I'm going to start utilizing it to, on all ranches, to hold free range low fence whitetails. It works. It it does work, and I, I've had the opportunity to play with so many different things, and I've had at the best in previous things I've played with, occasional success. With the TRHP Outdoor products, it's not, I'm not going to say it's a guaranteed thing, because I, I hate people to say it's a guaranteed thing, but you, you start using them and you start seeing results. Yes, sir. And that's totally different from anything else. To me, scents play two real important roles. And, and the, previously with the urine-based scents that people had is more a psychological thing for the hunter. Yes, sir. Because if the hunter uses a product and he thinks something's going to happen, he's going to pay attention. And if he's paying attention, regardless of the wind could be blowing from his back to, to from his back forward through his face, and he's got a, got a scent set up down there, and a duck comes from behind him, walks in that direction. Most hunters are going to swear he's going to that scent. Well, he probably didn't know that scent was there. But to me, again, it was a psychological thing, and the biological perspective of it was that, uh, yeah, it works some of the time. But with the TRHP Outdoors product, line of products, it works pretty much all the time. It, it does. <laughs> pretty much all the time. So... Uh, and if if you're interested in, in TRHP Outdoor products, and if you're a deer hunter, or even if you're a predator hunter, Gary uh, Robertson with Vernon Brothers uses some of their scents as well, too. And, of course, uh, Luke Clayton and a bunch of other guys use some of the, who do a lot of hog hunting, do their, the hog products as well, too. And then, much as I love the uh, the, the glandular uh, scents that we have for white-tailed deer, my favorite out of the whole bunch is still the... the um, the non-scent that we have, the scent guardian that just about does away, or it does away with every odd-smelling thing I've ever encountered, including skunks and a lot of different other things. So, yeah. but you can learn more about that if you go to trhpoutdoors.com, and you can leave a comment there. You can uh, order product, or you can also uh, ask a question there. And in between guys like Brandon, who's been using it for a while, and some of the other people involved with the product and the companies now, we can probably come up with an answer for you if you have any kind of questions at all. Brandon, I want to thank you for being with me here at this time. We're going to come back. We've still got some hunting we're going to do. Once we complete the hunt, I want to come back and revisit some of the things we talked about, but particularly talk a little bit about the, the white-tailed deer hunt that we're about to embark on. Larry, it's been an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you, DSC. Uh, well, DSC, we do need to mention, if you, by some reason, don't know about DSC, you really need to become aware of them as well, too. And 
best conservation organization there is in the world. You can become a member in several different levels, but you can learn more about DSC by going to B-I-G-G-A-M-E dot O-R-G and, and hope that you become a member because we really need your membership. We're in some interesting times, and there's no better way to uh, to fend off and fight some of the things we need to fight than through uh, DSC. So, Brandon, it's, I think it's time for us to go hunting. We'll yes, be back here around the campfire later this evening, maybe, and if not, tomorrow evening. And we'll kind of talk about some of the successes that we had. Hopefully there will be success, but i got a feeling there will be. I absolutely cannot wait, Larry. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfires. DSC Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by the Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. TRHP Outdoors. Kenetrek Boots for the trails less traveled. Voight, the finest in hunting gear. Pyramid Air for all things air gun. And Ripcord, rescue travel protection. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.